If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with Frank McDonough, Professor of International History at Liverpool John Moores University. Frank is an expert on the Third Reich and has recently published a book entitled The Hitler Years, Triumph, 1933 to 1939, which takes a chronological approach to the early history of Nazi Germany. He was interviewed by our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So this volume covers 1933 to 39, and there's another volume uh, to come as well. Um, can I ask, why, why do you think that this approach, that this um, chronological approach um, is warranted and necessary? Well, I think that, you know, when you look back over the Third Reich, I mean, many people will sort of say, oh, God, not another book about Hitler. But this isn't a book about Hitler, it's a book about the Third Reich. And also... Um, the tendency in, in academic studies is, is to write things thematically. Now, that helps because, obviously, if you're doing a university module and you can split it off into youth, women, and, of course, because of that, you've got to cut corners and, that, and you move the chronology. There is no chronology. If you look at sort of thematic books like Michael Burley or Richard Evans's books, they're thematic. You know, Richard Evans' books are really, really good, but they're very much thematic and aimed towards undergraduate students, really. And for the general reader, that's a hard slog because it presupposes you know that you are a, a university graduate studying history whereas a book like this aimed at the general reader i've got i've got to, i've got to try and take them through the story make them understand it you know through the years to see how it develops through the years now it's actually because i've written thematic books i would know this i've written a lot of thematic books this is much harder because, first of all, you've got to create a kind of um, a storyboard of each chapter. And then you've got to go away. When it when it's sort of so-and-so kills, gets killed, you've got to go and research that. So you're researching from the point of the order of the events rather than just saying, I'm going to look at everything about women and then I'm going to put it in dis- disparate places. So it's all about women. But it's not like in a chron- chronological order. It's about what women think. So it, it's a completely different approach for, for the reader. The last... Last major narrative book on the Third Reich is William Shirer's famous Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Now that book was written. He was a he was a, a journalist, an American journalist. He lived in Berlin. Uh, he hated the Nazis, and so it's not very historical in the sense that there's no objectivity 
he goes on and on about what horrible people they are and, you know, and, and, and the, some of the language now, you know, like when he's talking about Ernst Rome, you know, he, he, he says um, he suffers from a, a medical affliction. You know, which 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 he means that he's gay. You know, so you know some of the, some of that jars, and then his interpretation of the some of the language that he used. You know, the rape of Austria. Oh, you know, you know, it's and so I think Shira needs updating, and also because the, he didn't have all of the sources that were released after. All he had was the Nuremberg trial evidence, and as we know, these people were trying to evade justice, weren't they? So it wasn't as if they were telling the truth. Of course, he didn't have all all the local archives that come about. So to write a book about the Third Reich like this, you, I'm not just saying it, but you do have to be old and quite experienced. You know, it is a book for someone who's very experienced. And, you know, I've, te- I've taught this subject for 30 years. I've written a lot of books on the subject. So in a way, and also it, it's something for me to say, I'm pretty sure... I mean, last night the, the publisher said in his speech, he said, I think every generation should retell this story and retell it in their own way in relation to the context of now. So my context are different. Mine isn't sort of full of this sort of, and the evil Nazis walked in. It's like William Shires is full of this. Now, I can see he lived in Berlin. There was an anger there, wasn't there, for Shira? He knew how monstrous they were. But in many ways, you know, my style is to sort of let the horror let the horror percolate out don't don't sort of sort of say look this is horrific just just show it through interviews and through documents how horrific it is and then the reader the reader will get it and i think what the narrative gives you is that it gives you like a a real sense of time that he stops, you know, that there's a, there's a period when he does nothing. You know, I call the chapter on 1937 Deceptive Calm. But the book is called The Hitler Years. Now, it, it's only clear why it's called that when you open the book up, because then every chapter is a year. Every chapter looks at a specific year, 33, 34, and so on. But I wonder if we could also um, acknowledge that this isn't obviously the first time that historians have inevitably written about this period. You mentioned Hugh Trevor Roper's study of the years leading up to the war yeah. and you, how it was. It shows or indicates a carefully impl- implemented plan of expansion on Hitler's behalf. But is it fair to say that your book aims to show that this isn't this isn't as new? Yeah, I think my book um, changes that perspective by showing that Hitler Hitler doesn't always plan it methodically and sometimes he improvises a crisis so something will happen and then he'll exploit it. I mean the best example of that is the Austrian crisis of 1938 where he wants Austria to evolve into having a union with Germany so he brings the Austrian Chancellor to the Berghof that's his kind of you know Graceland in, in Bavaria overlooking the you know the Salzburg mountains and he brings him there and then he, he basically bullies him he takes him in a room on his own and he bullies him he basically says look I want you to uh, move to there's a road map towards the union between Germany and Austria. And these are the things I want you to do. I want you to have a vice chancellor who's a pro-Nazi. I want the finance minister to be a Nazi. I want the, uh, I want the, the, the police. I want, to, I want to allow, you know, some of our, you know, Gestapo to come in and t- transform the police and all the rest of it. So, you know, and, and he's really bullied. And I think at one point, Hitler, I mean, there's a few incidents like this in the book. 
that you sh you see Hitler as like he's like a gangster. He acts like a gangster. So in this one, he bullies him, and it really is like a scene from Godfather Two because what he does is he has this. Austrian Chancellor Schuschning, he has him in this room. And to intimidate him even more, he opens the door of the room. He says, can you go outside, please? And then he goes into the corridor and he shouts down the corridor, Kiesel! He's, he's one of his uh, army generals and brings him into the room. And then Kiesel comes in the room, he shuts the door. And then he just smiles at him. And was it to say, there's nothing, I don't want you to do anything. And then Schuschning, Ribbentrop, at the Nuremberg trials, he said, Shushing is like chain smoking in the corridor. He's like terrified. You know, so he really bullies him. Now, at that point, he's got an agreement there, hasn't he, to have a roadmap towards uh, the Union of Austria. It's not like he's going to say, I want to occupy Austria tomorrow. But then Shushing, this is where events, Hitler exploits events. But then Shushing calls a referendum. He asked the Austrian people, you know, to um, to stay independent. Of course, Hitler goes mad over this. And they bully him so much that he gives in. And then the, the troops march in on the 12th. Even then, he hasn't decided to occupy Austria and make it part of the Reich. But he's so emotional, he goes back to his hometown. And there are thousands of people outside the town hall where he gives a speech. He goes to Vienna. And that day, he says, right, I'm going to amalgamate Austria. But you can see there... That is something that sort of grows out of the events. Partly he, he wants it to happen, but really that he then exploits events. And we see that quite a lot. Um, if we can move on to another theme in your book, then this um, increased uh, racialization of Hitler's policies, his moves towards war. Um, what can you say about that? Well, I think, you know, you've got two things. When you're talking about looking at Hitler and his aims, there are two words that come to mind. One is race. And also to understand the Third Reich, one is race. It's it's race broadly defined. Race in the sense that he wants the Germans to be the master race. And race in the sense that he wants to get rid of races that he doesn't like. The Jews being a, they're a religion, but he sees them as a race. You know, and they're, 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 he sees them as part of this. It's it's a mad idea, but he believes it, that there's a Jewish worldwide conspiracy and that they undermine Germany in the First World War. And if there's another war, if the Jews are there, he thinks they're going to undermine them again. So he wants the Jews out of Germany. At that time, he wants them to emigrate. There's no indication that he's talking about exterminating them. And that grows out of the start of the war. And, he, he, you know, he, he wants the Jews out of society and also he wants to get rid of people he sees, you know, antisocial, um, you know, people like, you know, vagrants, uh, juvenile delinquents, uh, gay people, gypsies, you know, all these people who he sees as not part of the racially pure Germany, the national community, which is supposed to be full of these loyal comrades. And then the second part of his ideology is space. He's always talking about the idea of living space, Lebensraum, and he talks about that in Mein Kampf. So he's got that, he's got this idea, you know, in, in Mein Kampf he says something like, when we look to the future, we look to a living space. He said, but not like in 1914, limited territorial expansion. We need space in the East and we can only get that space by attacking the Soviet Union. That's right there. 
at, at the forefront. But of course, when you sort of say, well, Hitler just went on a, on a plan one by one to attack the Soviet Union. But then again, for tactical reasons, he has a pact with Stalin, the person he hates the most in the world. But that's for political, tactical reasons. That's why Hitler is a flexible politician. I always say, if you're looking at foreign policy before the Second World War, you'll see that Hitler's more flexible than Chamberlain because he won't change his view on appeasement. He carries on with it. So I think that's something that I try to get across in the book, that Hitler isn't like Donald Trump. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a very clever politician, very clever politician when he came to power. He sort of convinced Hindenburg and von Papen that he could be trusted. He was very good at that, and he was an actor. A good example of that is Albert Speer, who was his architect. And he said that when he first joined the Nazi party, he met Hitler. Hitler liked him. He said, come, come and see me in a speech. And Albert Speer said, that Hitler was, is this true this actually, Hitler was an unprepossessing person. If you met him in a, in a you know, a hotel lobby or something, I had a chat with him, you wouldn't be very impressed by him. But then Speer said, he said, come and wait in the wings while I, while I give my speech. And he said, then he, he gives his speech. Then he says, he's electrifying. He's absolutely electrifying. He said, and then he takes the, he takes the, uh, the crowd along with this idea of, you know, uh, what is it? Before me comes Germany, in me marches Germany, and after me comes Germany. He always, he always ended this speech with this phrase. And he said, he walks off the stage, he walks into the wings, he picks up a glass of water, drinks a bit of it, he looks at Speer and he says, how did that go? And that shows he's an actor. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The way the West looks at the war is that it's all D-Day and the Americans won the war, whereas when you look at the war itself, it's the Soviet Union that's sort of, you know, given the blood of your life. The famous phrase was, America gave the money, Russia gave the blood, and Churchill gave the speeches. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. 
Uh, and how much do you think this um, duality, if I can call it that, um, contributed to him being underestimated by the politicians early in his rise? I think the, the reason why politicians underestimated him was because he wasn't really a natural politician. You know, he didn't have, you know, most politicians have a university degree. They have a sort of high education. They usually come from the um, above the middle classes, you know, and he had none of that. You know, he was like, he was petty bourgeois. He didn't have a university degree. He'd left school when he was 15. So he, he didn't really have, um, you know, the qualifications you'd normally associate with a top politician. So say someone like Franz von Papen, who, who comes from that kind of background, and he's upper class and he's conservative, he, he sort of thinks, oh, this Hitler, he's like, he's, he's just some, you know, lower middle class idiot. And I think even when people like Chamberlain meet him, he's got the, the kind of upper class prejudice against him as well. Oh, I didn't find him very impressive. Oh, he's not that impressive. Lord Halifax says, oh, I mistook him for a footman. You know, and in a way, they, they can't really realise that, uh, you know, he's much more than a footman, you know, and that he's actually running rings around these people. And, and privately, he, he says, you know, he says, these people, Halifax and Chamberlain, he said, they're worms. They're not going to fight. And the other part of Hitler, I think, that comes out is he's a gambler. That he's, he's a gambler. He gambles all the time. Like when he gets the, the advice of these sort of, you know, middle-class generals, they give him this advice, you know, you can't march into the Rhineland because, you know, because France has got an army that's three times the size of our army and Britain won't stand for it. And Hitler says to them, yeah, but factor in that Britain and France aren't going to do anything. And then what do you say? So he was willing to take a risk. Now, his risk ran out, didn't it, when with the attack on Poland, he risks and, and, and all the people around him, Ribbentrop, are saying, oh, you know, maybe you should hold back. And he says, Britain and France won't do anything. He said, I saw those worms at Munich. They won't, they, won't, they won't lift a finger. Now, in one respect, he was right because the phony war happened, didn't it? They didn't lift a finger to help Poland in that way. But, of course, they started the war with him, didn't they? And they didn't actually ask him for a peace settlement after that. The British never asked Hitler for a peace settlement once they declared war on him. In other words, the war with Britain was going to go on even if America hadn't come in. If we can talk a little more about his ideologies then, because your book really brings them back central to the Nazi regime and shows how Hitler's um, ideology and popular appeal was so important to that, that Third Reich movement. Yes, I think that um, we see that in the way that he goes about um, trying to create this national community. And especially you see that in the Hitler Youth. You know, the Hitler Youth is a, is a kind of, when you look back on it now, it's an amazing organisation because it gets every young person involved in an organisation that is a Nazi organisation, which is actually focused around the cult of the personality of Hitler. And, you know, they, they have a prayer, the Adolf Hitler prayer, you know, God bless our Fuhrer and all this they say at the end of their meetings and you know that's a huge amount of people that he's starting to sort of inculcate into you know the ideology of the of the Nazis in that way he's also trying as well to um you know purge the left-wing people make the film and journalism make sure that that is also um, he calls it coordination so there's that going on as well at the same time um women he, he, he wants he wants to change the role of women you know instead of having women in the natural sort of industrial societies women gradually get more you know more power 
But in, in Nazi Germany, he wants to turn the clock back. He wants to turn it back to a, a kind of the woman stays at home as the sort of the housefrau and, and, and the husband goes out. He's either, you know, part of the national community. He works or he's in the army or whatever. So there's all that. So really what you've got is it's a very dynamic regime. You know, it's a very dynamic regime. And in a way... What you could say is that what, where we have a problem with the Third Reich is we just don't know what would have happened had he had, you know, he said he was going to have a thousand year Reich, but what about if there'd been no war and he, and he had sort of Germanized and, you know, created this national community where supposedly everyone was going to be classless, he said, not equal. Everyone was going to be classless. But not much goes on in terms of... I mean, I do say that, you know, the Nazi regime really is a kind of power cartel between big business, um, the Nazi organisations and the SS, and also the army. And the army are a huge independent force. And he doesn't really purge the army. He allows the army to remain free of any control. I mean, the Gestapo, for example, can't investigate the army. Now, the upshot of that is a massive conspiracy develops that the Gestapo knows nothing about and they're trying to kill Hitler. Something else you track in your book, and I guess this is the way, um, one of the ways that you can explore things in a chronological uh, manner, is how um, the, the symbol of the concentration camp, a key symbol of the regime, evolves from these wild concentration camps, yeah. wild in, in, in yeah. um, quotation marks, to the mass horrors of the final yeah. solution, yeah. Um, and involving you know eugenic experiments yeah. as well. Yeah. What can you say about that? Well, I think that uh, that's where I, I, I come back to this idea of you know he's trying to that's where his race comes into it he wants to create this master race and the concentration camps are part of that they're taking people out of society the idea of the concentration camp was they'd be re-educated to be national comrades um and a lot of people did get out of the concentration camps you know after three or four years they got out of the concentration camps but not as a political opponents but they changed then into like racial camps because you know then he starts to bring in habitual criminals come into the concentration camps then he brings in um gay people uh, fished off the streets even the long-term unemployed there's a thing called operation work shy where a person who turns down two jobs ends up in a, in, a, in a concentration camp. So the concentration camp changes. The makeup of it changes. Gypsies are brought into the concentration camps. Alcoholics, vagrants, yeah, juvenile delinquents. He creates you know, the homes, of uh, youth hostel homes, are turned in, into these kind of rehabilitation centres. So all of that is going on, this kind of purification of Germany on the basis that all the antisocial elements, all the racially impure elements have to be pushed out of society. Then we'll have this pure national socialist community of wonderful German people with blonde hair, and you know and, and and five or six children you know in this in this and you see all these posters some of them are in the book the posters of you know the the wonderful woman breastfeeding uh you always see sort of it's always a blonde woman it's always a very strong male who works on the land you know they, they, you don't see any industrial scenes in, in nazism because ultimately he wants to have a kind of giant rural community spreading out into the you know what used to be the soviet union 
Uh, so if we could talk about the the um, the next volume. Well, the the idea was to to break it up into two. Uh, I originally had this idea that it could be done in one, and then the publisher said to me, "No, do you understand how big this would be? If it was in one, it'd be like sort of twelve hundred pages, and the the reader's going to give up on that." So I split it into two because it's years. Usually these books, when they're in two, stop at September nineteen thirty nine. But because mine goes through every year. Mine stops in December the 31st, 1939, and the next one starts in January 1940 and goes through to the end of the Third Reich, the final unconditional surrender, death of Hitler. And um, it's it probably longer. It's it's more dramatic in terms of the Holocaust features heavily in Volume Two. Um, the battles of the Second World War, the military battles, feature heavily as well. And it's very dramatic. You know, I mean, I'd never written a, a military history in detail, but but the the other. Um, books on the Third Reich usually the military history is terrible they just ignore it, they just do it in two or three pages so I thought well I'm going to do it in more detail and that way it's going to, it is going to be different from, from I mean he, Richard Evans he's a great historian he is but he does admit that he's not a military historian he actually said in his book don't expect any detail on the battles here you know and he sort of he, he sort of you know gives like D-Day in four pages and stuff like that whereas I give re, I give it real you know great treatments and great treatments of the the war between the Soviet Union and Germany which was the big war of the Second World War the way the West looks at the war is that it's all D-Day and the Americans won the war whereas when you look at the war itself it's the Soviet Union that's sort of you know given the blood of your life what was the famous the famous phrase was America gave the money Russia gave the blood and Churchill gave the speeches That was Frank McDonough. The History Years, Triumph 1933 to 1939, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. And you can read a review of the book in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is out later this week. Well, that's about it for this episode, which was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Please do listen in on Wednesday, when Eloise Moss will be discussing the history of burglary. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.